Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello and welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast. I am your host, Trevor Williams, and this is the podcast for anybody curious to learn about where their food comes from and learning about all the cool businesses in agriculture like direct-to-consumer businesses and farms that have agritourism, which make learning about ag super, super fun. So today on the show, we are going to interview an Iowa farmer by the name of Steve Strassheim. So Steve has a farm called Twisted River Farm. And now when you think about Iowa agriculture, you might think about corn, soybeans, and pork, and you would be correct. But Steve is trying to change that. He has a farm where he grows leafy greens and microgreens in northern Iowa. And instead of just selling that direct to consumers or just directly to a store, he sells it to basically everybody. So Steve is a busy man. He sells his direct to consumers, stores, farmers markets, and restaurants, which is phenomenal. So a lot of people in Northern Iowa are getting some great locally grown produce from Steve. So in our interview today, Steve is going to walk us through kind of his background, how we got started with Twisted River Farm, his inspiration with it. And um, he had a really cool quote. Basically, he wanted to control the entire process from seed to store. And he basically does that. And so he's going to tell us how he grows his greens, how he uses a hoop house, which is kind of like a a greenhouse, um, aka also known as a high tunnel. But um, in the hoop house, they grow the plants in the soil. And that soil is then kind of protected by um, plastic or basically fabric that kind of lets some sunlight in. So yeah, it's super fascinating learning um, more from Steve, kind of what his biggest wins are, what his whole process is like, um, and especially kind of the whole direct-to-consumer model and how kind of COVID impacted that and stuff like that. So yeah, um, I hope you enjoy this episode. Again, this is episode 136 with Steve Strassheim from Twisted River Farm. Thanks for listening and hope you enjoy it. All right. Well, Steve Strassheim, welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast, man. How are you doing? Real good, Trevor. Thanks for having me. 
Yeah, excited to chat with you. So I always love learning more about, you know, microgreens operations and stuff like that. And you're with a cool company called Twisted River. So kind of give us the lowdown on your background and kind of how you started doing that. Sure. So Twisted River Farm and its uh, present day iteration is a two acre mixed vegetable farm. We're located in north central Iowa in a little town called Mitchell. Uh, we grow pretty much A to Z uh, mixed vegetables, except for sweet corn and potatoes. Uh, we kind of grow a little bit of everything else out in the field. We've got uh, four hoop houses that we grow uh, in soil uh, through the winter even. So we've got uh, baby leaf greens in those actually right now in the winter time and it's minus 13 degrees out uh and then we have indoor uh microgreen production that uh you know we're not a huge microgreen producer our uh we have four four racks with five vertical shelves uh, so we're kicking out oh around 100 trays a week of microgreens that's a pretty decent amount though that's awesome yeah i mean in uh we're again in a very rural rural area. We're not in like a, a big metro area where microgreens were kind of a thing. You know, we really had to develop that market uh, some years ago, and it's been the little engine that could. We finally, if I feel like, kind of we're now to that point where you know I don't have to really explain what they are too much anymore. So that's, oh yeah, <laughs> that's a good thing. That's pretty good. Yeah, I feel like microgreens kind of popped on the scene like years ago. I mean, first they started like appearing on tacos and just random stuff yeah. now yeah. more and more people are putting them on, on on everything like pizza and i mean basically whatever else i always say you can kind of just throw them anywhere you put like a leafy green so anywhere you'd put like spinach or lettuce microgreens are more than appropriate you know they're great for garnishes uh you know one of the things i always kind of love to tell people about is like how how like moms love them for their kids we grow mm -hmm. pea shoots which are a very common microgreen a lot of people grow uh, and you know, I always hear from like moms, like, oh, I can't get the kids to eat vegetables, but they'll eat pea shoots because they, you know, they're easy to kind of hold on to and stick in their mouth and chew on. And they have that kind of sweet pea flavor and they all come and buy loads of pea shoots because that's the only vegetable they can get the kids <laughs> to eat. So that's kind of a fun story. Yeah. Hey, that's better than nothing. Uh, yeah. I've, I've got a friend that introduced me to um, a microgreens company here in Florida and we went to a farmer's market. His name is Paul. And he would walk around just eating the microgreens by themselves. Yeah. Um, like just walking around, eat them out of the tray. I'm like, dude, you are so healthy. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> you know, and we've had a, I've been really careful like how to market them up here because, you know, again, you kind of have to know your market. And in, in rural, you know, Iowa, you can imagine we have very like vanilla ice cream and potato uh, type you know, flavoring. We're not too culinarily adventurous around here. <laughs> and so I've really been careful not to like scare people away. You know, sometimes when, you know, you get into a, a market like ours and you, you kind of go too hard towards like the hippy dippy uh, health food, it, it kind of intimidates people and they just don't find any interest in that. So we've actually really tried to market our microgreens on more like, uh, like convenience mostly. Mm. Um, and that has really resonated with people. It's not about like eating, you know, as, as people around here might kind of, uh, oh, like, oh, you granola, you know, granola eating, you know, freak. What the heck is that kind of stuff? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's just like, uh, we kind of just market it as another leafy green and it's just convenient. It's already in a little package. You don't have time to chop up a head of lettuce for your sandwich. Hey, just grab a little handful of microgreens and throw them on your sandwich. No big deal. Yeah, that's a great marketing tactic. I mean, it's already like 
you don't have to do anything like you said. You don't have to process it, cut it up or anything. And it's, I mean, it. I would say microgreens are a lot tastier than lettuce and a lot of other leafy greens. Oh, I mean, yeah. tons it, of fucking, you know, tons of flavor. You can you can sneak it in too. You know, maybe somebody doesn't like yeah. like radishes, but hey, you can throw a little couple sprigs of micro radish into a dish and. Uh, you know, I've, I have wives tell me that all the time too. Like, Oh, I can't get the husband to eat like radishes and stuff, but I can just sneak some micro radish into his sandwich or on his taco or something. And he loves the flavor, but he doesn't know what he's eating. So (laughs) kind of of a backdoor for some nutrition there. It sounds like, and some of them like, are the radish ones, the ones that are kind of spicy a little bit, like a little bit of spice there. Yeah. Yeah. They, they're peppery, just like a regular radishes. Yeah. Yeah, those are good. We've had some of those. And um, yeah, they're great to put on pizza. Like, I know it sounds weird, but you, you haven't oh, yeah. lived oh. until you've tried it on pizza. It's super good. It's like an extra bite there. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, all right. You said you've got hoop houses and you've got indoor growing um, for, for the microgreens. So a hoop house is basically kind of like a greenhouse, but you're growing it in the soil, correct? Yeah. Yep. I'm, that's always something, too, that sometimes confuses people like what's a you know there's you can call them a lot of different things some people call them high tunnels some people call them Mm -hmm. houses Uh, a lot of people just think of them as greenhouses you know the general public really doesn't know those nuances so uh you know a greenhouse typically in my mind is like a cement floor with tables that you're going to do like your seed propagation and your plants and all that stuff on tables and stuff whereas like a hoop house or a high tunnel in my mind anyway uh, you know, it's just soil. You're planting in the soil. Uh, very similar structure. Uh, we don't heat ours per se. So uh, even up here in the in the cold tundra, um, we've found varieties of, you know, spinach is, I always say, the king of cold. It's good down to, I don't even know what the low temperature is. I mean, it'll, it'll freeze solid. And as soon as the sunlight hits it the next day, uh, it bounces right back to life. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. I did not know that. And I mean, it, it seems like spinach is kind of a delicate leaf. And so that's interesting that it, I mean, you can you know, freeze it's it it's fine. Absolutely. And, the, and you know, the really cool thing about spinach is like when you think of like when you go to the grocery store and you buy a, a container of spinach and you know what the, the shape of the leaf is like a little spoon with a little tiny stem on it. And you typically would think about grabbing the stem and eating the leaf first. But in the winter time, it's actually the other way around. You want to turn that around and eat the stem first the stems get kind of thick and crunchy and they turn candy sweet in the winter time. They, it's like eating, e- eating winter spinach is a whole different product than eating like baby leaf spinach any other time of the year. And it's a far better product in my mind. That's awesome. And so um, what's the whole production process of growing microgreens? Uh, you know, they're in a controlled environment like we are, uh, where we can control the heat and the humidity and everything indoors. It's really a very tight production schedule. We plant and harvest every single week. Uh, we set the trays out. Uh, we just plant in little, the standard little 10 by 20 gardener's trays. Uh, you can get those anywhere. Uh, we put some soil in there. We use just a peat moss medium and uh, fill the tray up, man it down, wet it down. We put the seed right on top of the soil. Uh, we usually, most of the varieties we grow now, we actually stack the trays on top of each other and put a cement block on the top. Now that sounds really weird, but the seeds really germinate well when they have some pressure. And then what happens after a few days is they'll germinate and actually start lifting each tray up. So you can actually see them lifting each tray above them 
uh, and the cement brick. It's a really wild thing to see. Uh, and that's how we know they're kind of ready to be put under the lights. After that two, three, four days of germination, we unstack them, put them under the lights and about, oh, it kind of depends on the variety, but uh, generally another five to seven or so days, they're ready for harvest. Yeah, I watched some videos on YouTube and I saw some guy grow them. And when he put the cinder blocks on there, I was like, what in the world? Yeah. But I mean, it makes sense because he was explaining it kind of like the way you did. Like when they're growing, it helps push the, push the, the seeds back into the soil. Yeah. And it's great. Like it's such a good idea. Yep. Well, and so there's a couple different things there to consider. Like, you know, when you when you plant out your seeds out in the garden, you know, you cover those seeds to protect them from the sunlight and the, the elements so that they have good uh, germination. But oftentimes, if you think about use like uh, even a conventional farmer or even like the little push seeders, they always have a wheel that follows the seed. Right. Mm-hmm. And that presses the seed down so that you get good contact. So they like kind of that compaction, that little bit of pressure to kind of hold in place so that when they shoot that tail out, you know, they have something to grab onto. And so we're really kind of mimicking that with the cement. Uh, and you can use any kind of weight, really. It doesn't take a whole lot, but we just use cement because it's convenient. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it, it, it helps that seed um, to soil contact. And they like that little bit of pressure. The other reason there is we don't bury the seed in soil. And that's from like a cleanliness thing. Like you could you could kind of do the same thing by burying the seed in the tray. Mm. But when the seeds germinate and then you get that little green shoot that pops up, now you're going to have all that little soil bits on there because it, it had to push that soil up. So that's why we plant on top of the soil and stack them. So there's a little bit of a, a process there of why we do that. Gotcha. And that all makes sense. So once you harvest the microgreens, what's the time frame in which you harvest it to when you're going to deliver it to like like either a farmer's market, a store, or a restaurant? Like what's sure. that whole kind of processing yeah, uh, thing like? Less than 24 hours, generally speaking. We uh, we harvest the same day every week, and then we distribute the next day every single week. Uh, so you, generally speaking, because uh, we do sell into, we're in six, uh, soon to be seven area grocery stores uh, with them. And uh, yeah, we... we distribute every single Friday. So customers, if they get their Friday afternoon to the store, they're getting ultra fresh harvested greens. Uh, shelf life on them can vary a little bit. We've really, uh, over the years now, we've kind of uh, honed in our variety. We only grow three different varieties of microgreens now. We have our micro radish that we blend in with some uh, red cabbage. We call that our micro blend, our pea shoots, and then our micro broccoli. The micro radish and the pea shoots honestly have probably like a two, if not even a three week shelf life. They're extremely shelf stable. Uh, So they're really nice for that. They don't spoil very quickly. Micro broccoli, on the other hand, is really tender and that has a a little bit less shelf life. I mean, oftentimes, you know, seven to 10 days is probably pushing it for micro broccoli. Um, We like that one kind of, it does serve those like, ultra nutrition minded people. They really like the micro broccoli because it's like a nutritional powerhouse in the, mm-hmm. in the vegetable world. Uh, so we do grow a little bit of that for, for those types of folks, but um, moreover, the other ones, we want to have a really good shelf life so people can go to the grocery store, bring it home and not have to, you know, that typical thing in people's mind where I buy leafy greens and then they are, they're bad in two or three days or barely by the time I get them home where these are good, 
just as long as like a nice, you know, long standing leaf lettuce or something. Yeah, that's the hardest thing. I mean, just buying produce and making sure you use it before it expires. I mean, that's so handy that leafy green, or, yeah, that your leafy greens are going to last so so long. So you you don't really have that pressure of using them as quickly as you can. You can kind of enjoy them, yeah, and they'll last a long time, which is awesome. And we've selected for that on our our baby leaf greens uh, that we produce too, like our our uh, baby lettuce mix or spring mix you know, or arugula, all that. We, we select for varieties that actually have uh, a little bit more hardiness to them so that they will have that good shelf life. We get comments constantly from people at the farmer's market or something. They'll say, geez, I bought that container of lettuce two weeks ago. And I, you know, I just opened it up the other day. It kind of got pushed back to the fridge and <laughs> it looks like we just bought it. How do you do that? And I always kind of joke that we dip each leaf into some uh, like preservative or something. But it's, <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's a combination of variety selection and the fact that we're comparing it to like the national brands who, you know, being up in the upper Midwest here, a lot of our uh, national brand stuff is at least a few days, if not six or eight days old by the time it even gets onto the shelves up here, you know, so uh, we beat them by a week right there uh, just by having it so close. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that fresh, um, idea because you're so close is such a win-win. I mean, because you're local, you can get it to them a lot quicker and then it can stay in the fridge a lot longer, which I feel I feel like a lot of people don't really realize that. They just think that, I mean, once you buy a produce from the grocery store, it's like picked right then and there. It's super duper fresh. But yep. then usually it's been picked like a week or sometimes oh, two weeks or a lot longer even. Very much so. And, and that's uh, you know, as a society, we've been trained. That's kind of how it is. You know, produce just doesn't last very long. Well, honestly, that's not the way it is. You know, it's actually the exact opposite. Produce actually, for the most part, uh, some stuff, you know, root vegetables and stuff, you can store them for many, many months. But, you know, it's just you don't know really what you're getting sometimes at the grocery store. Yeah, that's true. And so looking at your website and doing a little bit of research on you guys, you guys kind of have the trifecta. You deliver to farmers markets, restaurants, and stores, which is, I mean, that's wild you do all three. And yeah. so what was kind of the process of getting to that point? And then um, what's kind of the differences there between selling to farmers markets, restaurants, and then stores? So my background, uh, I, I grew up on a sugar beet farm in eastern Montana, which none of that really translate uh, <laughs> translates to what I'm doing now. I, I left the farm uh, when I graduated high school in, in the late 90s and never really looked back. I didn't want to be a farmer. Uh, and then I ended up in Iowa and became a farmer. So it's kind of a, a change of the story there. But anyway, um, I, have a, uh, I spent most of my career in sales and marketing. And so I really approached um, coming into this as a business first. You know, a lot of times young farmers want to just have that idyllic, uh, idealistic, I want to be a farmer and I want to save the world with the produce that I grow. And that's all great. But oftentimes you can see gaps in the business plan there where they don't really think about where am I going to do with all this stuff once I grow it? And I kind of looked at it the opposite way. And being that we're in such a rural area, you know, we don't have huge market centers to sell to. I mean, our biggest town that we sell into is only about 27,000 people. Um, so we had to be a little bit more creative about like where we were going to sell. And so I really developed the strategy of having multiple like market channels with multiple accounts underneath of each of those channels so that we would have 
a little shock absorber in there. We didn't have to rely on just the farmer's market. And if you get a rain out, well, now you're screwed for the whole week. We could have that stuff and uh, take it to a restaurant or take it to a grocery store or move it into, we do home delivery. Uh, you know, we have all sorts of different avenues to move our stuff. So I can't honestly remember the last time we put anything on the compost pile because we usually have a spot to send it all away. So. I mean, that's pretty good. That's not too yeah. shabby at all. And I, you know, I, I've always, you know, in, in these types of interviews, I always say that that's been kind of the secret to our success is that we have diversified those market channels so that uh, we always have a place to sell. Uh, second part to that question was that look like selling to all those different ones. Uh, it can be a little tricky. Um, you know, consistency is part of our game. You know, we want to make sure we have product, especially when you're selling to wholesale buyers like grocery stores and restaurants. They want to know that you got the stuff every single week uh, or, you know, when you say you're going to have it at least. And so there's, you know, you got to dial in your production a little bit to, to make sure that you have that consistency. Uh, we still sell into a couple farmers markets because, uh, you know, love them and hate them. I, I have kind of that relationship with farmers in the markets. I love them because they're a great way to connect with new customers. You get that instant feedback loop of what they like, what they don't like. Uh, you certainly get all the margin on it. You don't have to share that with the wholesale side. Uh, but it's a lot of time. You know, it's uh, some investment and some risk there with uh, time and the weather and everything else. But uh, still liking them uh, more than hating them, uh, I guess in our in our long term plan, I'd like to try to move out of farmers markets eventually. But I don't see that happening, at least in the next couple of years. Uh, and then we got into um, uh, home delivery two years, actually just right around two years ago now, uh, in answer to COVID. Uh, we lost a lot of our restaurant accounts March of 20 uh, during the shutdowns. And so we had a pivot because we were in about mm, 10 or 12 at the time uh, restaurants and you know you lose them all literally all of them overnight You're like what the heck are we going to do so mm -hmm. we kind of followed the the uh, example of some farms we were watching nationally and they were all kind of seeming to be pivoting to some direct sales through home delivery I thought well what the heck we'll give it a try and I tell you what that has taken off like a rocket ship uh, we actually ended up uh, developing that into like a home delivered CSA. We call it our salad subscription. And uh, that now in 2021, uh, home delivery and uh, farmers markets ended up being 64% of our entire revenue uh, with uh, farmers markets were about 22%. So about 40, almost 50% of our business last year was from that. Uh, home delivery program, which That's is awesome. pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah. Oh yeah. And and that pivot is huge. I mean, I, I heard of so many farmers and like, for example, um, last year I interviewed a microgreens farmer in North Carolina and he did the same thing. He was delivering to restaurants and then COVID happened and he was like, well, crap, what am I going to do? And he was like, well, let me just deliver straight to consumers. And it worked out well. And so like, how did you go through that process of um, like building up some clientele that you could deliver to? Uh, we had started an email list a couple years prior to that, and it wasn't big at all, maybe 30 people on it or something like that. And we had put most of our marketing efforts into social media, especially Facebook. And we're really trying to like grow that, uh, that Facebook following. 
during that whole time frame, you know, we just started throwing out, uh, hey, we're doing home delivery now. We got product, you know, restaurants are closed. We want to help the community get access to fresh food through this turbulent time. And there was talk about shortages in the grocery stores. So if you need product, let us know. We'll come and bring it right to your front door. And uh, that's how we kind of got started. You know, looking back on it, I'll be quite frank and say, I thought it'd probably be a month, maybe two. You know, we didn't really know back then. And everybody was thinking, well, maybe 30 days, we all lock in our houses and this will all be over. Ha ha ha. Uh, you know, I didn't have any long-term expectations for it. I just thought that'll be something to kind of pacify us through these couple months or whatever. And then, and then back to normal. Uh, and then it just kept growing. And then we started aggregating in other farm products. So then we were delivering our stuff plus offering like grass fed beef and eggs and chicken and honey and spice, local made spice packets. And we had a, had a pretty robust uh, online store selection for that. Um, but then one of the things we kept hearing from some customers, oh, we really love that home delivery. But, you know, shoot, I always forget to order every week. Is there any way you can just like bring me stuff you kind of know what i like would you just bring me stuff and then you can just bill me or whatever and uh, that's how the the csa component started uh is just trying to add to that convenience level of you know we're already bringing it to your front door how much more convenient can it be than that well not even having to worry about ordering it would be the ultimate so um we we started that and then that really took off we uh, uh just just yesterday uh, sold out our spring session uh, of people. So, and that's a month and a half ahead of last year. So uh, that's really, really popular. That's awesome. And so CSA is like community supported ag, right? Yeah. Yep. So you pre it, uh, I guess the easiest way I, I like to explain it to people because people don't know what the heck a CSA means. It's like a subscription service. Um, mm. And this is, I think it actually started in Japan, like back in the sixties or seventies or something like that. It's that, model's been around forever but basically what you do is you're you're prepaying for a share of vegetables or, or produce or uh there's meat csas there's all sorts of flour csas now i mean there's all sorts of different csas popping up these last number of years uh so it, it's definitely caught on but the customer prepays and what that does is it, it basically puts some skin in the game to them they want to support the farmer uh, give the farmers some funds up front when they need it the most. Uh, I never really wanted to do that. I just didn't like that. Like pay me now. I'll give you the product later. I didn't want to feel beholden. Uh, and in the early years, uh, but, uh, now it's just a convenience thing. And now we call it subscription because that's the world we live in now. And we subscribe to all sorts of different stuff. So we just call it our salad subscription and that's easy for people to understand. Uh, we make it, um, we, we break it up in a chunk. Some farms do like these long 20, 22, 26 week sessions, uh, and they're really kind of a big cash outlay. We've decided to make it into two shorter sessions with a little bit of a break in the middle of the heat of the summer when people are traveling around, you know, the 4th of July and everything anyway. Uh, so we run 10 weeks in the spring, 10 weeks in the fall on the CSA and we break it up into two payment chunks. So it's more approachable for a lot of people. They don't have to come up with 500 bucks or 600 bucks all at one time. And they can split it up into a couple different ways. We have a few different size options so that smaller households or bigger households have some options there too. 
and it works really slick. We really like it. That's awesome. And so would you say a lot of that was kind of trial and error, kind of like seeing what ha- what works, what does totally. and what consumers like and what they don't? Totally, totally. Um, we, if you can't tell, we're pretty uh, attentive uh, and pay attention to what our customers like. We're hyper-focused on marketing, uh, again, because of my background. But uh, we surveyed both sessions after we did the two sessions last year to trial it out. Uh, we sent out some surveys. Mm. Just take a, a couple minute little survey. What did you like about this? What didn't you like? Did you like the variety? Did you was it too much? Too little? We adjusted a little bit in the fall uh, after that survey. We did another survey after the fall session. Now we've adjusted again for the spring, and so we'll just keep doing that and uh, adjusting and adjusting until I don't know if we'll ever hit perfection, but uh, we'll just keep asking our customers, "What do you like? What don't you like?" What are we doing well? Huh. Well, that's not bad. And so, I mean, kind of juggling that and juggling delivering to stores and farmers markets, like how, how much of a challenge is it to make sure you have enough inventory, you have enough products for all of that? Because I, I, I mean, I'm sure the grocery stores are kind of consistent, even the restaurants, but the farmers markets, I'm sure vary from week to week. And so mm-hmm. like how much pressure is there and how do you manage that? Um, yeah, it is a lot of pressure, you know, and especially when you get, uh, into the summer, oddly enough, that's when it, it gets hard because now you're fighting the bugs and the weeds and the heat and the drought. And, you know, there's a lot of environmental factors that you're going up against in the summer. Um, we overplant just to make sure, uh, not to say we don't run short sometimes, but there again, because of our, well, market diversity, but also the relationships we've established with our, our even our wholesale customers you know, they, they know the deal. We're a local farm. We don't have like the, you know, big fancy machinery and stuff. And Hey, things happen, you know, mother nature bats last. Sometimes we lose some product. We're not going to have our most popular spring mix this week. Unfortunately, we'll bet we'll have it again next week. And we haven't really had any trouble so far with that. I mean, yeah, sometimes it's a little disappointing, but Hey, we, we, try better next time or we make adjustments so it doesn't happen as much or whatever. Um, yeah. So it's, it's a little stressful, I'm not going <laughs> to lie, <laughs> but we make it work. Hey, well, there you go. I mean, it's all about adapting. And I mean, that's obviously a huge thing for you guys that you guys pivoted during COVID. And um, cause I know obviously countless um, companies that didn't survive, but you guys pivoted and you've made, it seems like a very, very successful business model out of that pivot. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, we're lucky. Uh, you know, we worked hard, so we'll take a little credit for hustling a little bit, but we also got some luck in there too. And I, I don't say that braggadociously because yeah, not a lot of businesses made it out in one piece and they're still struggling. Uh, we're fortunate we're in an industry where, you know, we have the demand and we have the, you know, we didn't really have any supply chain issues. We don't really have any labor issues, knock on wood. So we've, we've had some real luck on that side of things, but, um, yeah, looking at how it affected our business, uh, in, in, uh, 2000, like 19 going into 20, uh, at the end of the 2020 year, our business, uh, grew, we were up plus 64% in that year, year over year. And I thought, okay, that's a pretty big jump. You know, we probably won't see that in 2021. You know, things will be getting back to normal. Vaccines are coming out. You know, eventually that's going to plateau. 
we finished 2021 at plus 34. So we've actually doubled effectively uh, our revenue in two seasons. So it's been a, a pretty crazy couple of years. Oh, I bet. Well, good for you guys. I mean, how did that kind of process or how did that kind of impact um, stuff at the farm? Like, did you have to get more hoop houses and stuff? Like, how did that affect? Yeah, stuff? yeah. That's when the hoop houses came prior to we actually built three, mm. three hoop houses in 2020. We didn't even have those going into 20. Uh, so we bought three of them in uh, 2020. And then we just put up another one uh, at a partner farm in 2021. So we've got before now and that, that those things change life. If you're uh, a new vegetable farmer, uh, you know, I heard it when I was young, getting into this too. Everybody said, get a tunnel. First thing, get a tunnel. And, you know, they're expensive and, you know, they're a little out of reach. But uh, my advice to young farmers, get a tunnel. <laughs> <laughs> Just go ahead and do it. Yeah. Whatever you have to do, get a tunnel. They change the game. And I, I know that that term gets tossed around, you know, game changer. I try not to use that too much, but it really does. It adds, you know, in our world, uh, you know, it allows us to grow year round. I mean, we're, we're in North Iowa zone 5A. We have a really short growing season without it. And those tunnels effectively give us year round production. So they really make a big difference. It sounds like it. And so I mean, kind of a, not a random question, but kind of changing things up a little bit. What would you yeah. say has been kind of your biggest win during this whole thing? Um, I think just, I, I think getting our stuff out to as many different places mm. as we have, uh, when you look at what other farms are in our area, uh, we don't have a lot of other vegetable farms. We really don't have like in the grocery stores, in the restaurants, we really don't have any other like vegetable competitors. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, other little farms like on the meat side and stuff that are, you know, marketing fairly aggressively like we are. But on the vegetable side, you know, there's a few other ones that go to some farmer's markets and they dabble a little bit in, you know, some restaurant. But, you know, nobody's in like the grocery that we are. Nobody's doing the uh, home delivery that we are. Like we've it's been kind of my mission to like make local food accessible uh, at least my local food accessible in North Iowa. I don't want, I mean, we're kind of in like a local food desert up here per se. I mean, it's gotten a lot better in the, over the years, uh, these last, you know, five or six years specifically. Uh, but local food is a little bit hard to find around our area here. It's, it's a little sparse. And so I've made it kind of my, my mission to make sure that if somebody's interested in buying like local produce, it's not a wild goose chase and heck we'll even bring it right to your front door. So I feel like that's a big win for us. And, and cause that's just in a way I, you know, not to sound like we're bigger than we are, but you know, that's kind of changing the fabric of our community where, Hey, we have this as an option. It's, it could be viewed as a, a selling point to like a new family coming to the area. Oh, they've got like a vegetable farm that does home delivery. That's awesome. We had that where we used to live, that kind of thing. So uh, I feel pretty proud of that. Hey, you should. I, and I mean, when I think of Iowa, I think of corn and pigs. And now I'm going to think of microgreens because of operations like you guys. Yeah, well, and people still do. You know, we're the corn and soy uh, capital of the world. So <laughs> there's a lot of it around here. But, um, you know, when I first got into this and I it was really because my wife and I wanted to start eating like some local food. 
and we couldn't really find it. And, you know, we started going to the farmer's market that, at the time and couldn't, you know, found a little bit of what we wanted, but um, nobody had a great answer of why isn't any of this in like grocery stores and why can't we go to a restaurant and find this stuff? And I thought, well, heck, I'll do it myself. So here we are. <laughs> hey, might as well. I, I, I can't remember the quote, but there's so much saying that's like, if, oh, if you can't find somebody doing it, then do it yourself. And it sounds like you've done just that. Yeah, yeah, kind of grab the bull by the horns. And, it, you know, it's been a lot of fun. I mean, it's a lot of work and there's a lot of sacrifice into it. But I don't know. I The way we started, you know, we we were in a, a different town at the time. We, we purchased this property about four years ago. When we got started in all this, we lived in a 700 square foot house that we rented with no back. I mean, we had a big backyard, but it was like on a hill next to a river. We had no land. We had no connection to agriculture uh, we had zero business thinking that we could be farmers. I mean, at the time, but, uh, I kind of say if I can do it, anybody can do it. So <laughs> just goes to show you what's possible if you really want it bad enough. Hey, you never know. You never know unless you actually do it. Um, and so one question I'd like to ask everybody is kind of their thoughts on the farmer consumer relationship. And so <laughs> I think you're going to have a cool perspective on this because you, you pivoted during a, a crazy time in our lives and you created, uh, an, an, I guess you could say like a convenience factor for consumers delivering straight to them. And so what would you say now, the whole farmer-consumer relationship, is it better? Is it getting worse? What do you think? I think, uh, boy, how do you answer that question? I think <laughs> to, me, to me, that's a very market-specific. It could be very different here than it is in mm. uh, Des Moines or Madison, Wisconsin or Tampa Bay, Florida. I mean, it, it's different kind of in every community. Some areas have really uh, garnered that real close farmer consumer relationship in areas like ours. We're working on it. Uh, we don't have a very wide, robust community wide relationship yet, but we're, you know, we're getting there. Um, I think overall, um, you know, the, in the national scene, I follow that really closely too. I'm really interested uh, in following those trends like on Twitter and stuff and seeing what, you know, not farmers in my world, but like, what are the big guys doing and what are they thinking about and what are they talking about? And um, I think that like the national conversation between farmers and consumers is maybe a little bit skewed depending on what, like, are you talking about like the relationship between like, I, I think it's the relationship between like commodity agriculture farmers and consumers is really turbulent. Mm. Um, there's a lot of distrust there on both sides. And I think the relationship between um, like fresh market type farmers and consumers, um, there's a, you know, there's a little gap there too, but I think um, there's not as much maybe. Uh, we could that could be a whole other conversation <laughs> in itself. <laughs> we could take two hours on a podcast talking about that. But um, I think there's obviously when you look at the national trends, there's a lot of interest by consumers that they want to know that we're you know that their food is clean. Um, notice I didn't use any of the buzzwords uh, like organic and all that kind of stuff. That's I true. try not. I try not to do that because. Um, you know, some people plant their flags on all that stuff. And I, I don't know where I fit into all that, but like, um, I think the, the, like 
if the polling is true, consumers really want like to know that their food is clean and safe to eat. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a, that's kind of a, a basic given. I mean, nobody wants to say, Oh, I want to eat dirty, unclean food. Uh, but the perception that a lot of our food is unclean and, and unsafe to eat is really out there. So like consumers, uh, it's hard. It's really hard labeling, you know, it's what do they believe? And, you know, there gets to be a lot of the trade groups involved and they muddy the waters up and it's kind of a mess, honestly. And that's why I feel locally, it's really important to develop those close relationships with our customers to build that one-on-one -on -one trust so that they know uh, we don't need all the stickers and the labeling. Uh, they can come out and see it. They can come and talk to me at the farmer's market. They can talk to me when I drop it off at their house and we can have those conversations and they can ask questions. Um, and I think that's really important. And that's something that I think um, a lot of farmers need to do a lot better of, honestly, and I'm not perfect either, but um, there gets to be a lot of cantankerous uh uh, conversations, at least on Twitter anyway, and Twitter doesn't always represent what's actually happening in the world. Uh, but, you know, hey, why don't consumers just buy into everything that we're just saying? You know, like they don't want to have those conversations. You know, they don't want to get to know their customers. They just want to sell their stuff blindly out there. Uh, and I don't agree with that. I think that we really need to do a better job as farmers of uh, telling our story and educating people of what we're doing and not just rhetoric. So, yeah, I like that answer. I mean, I think the key thing there is kind of like transparency, like operations like you guys are doing. I mean, local places that are, you know, building relationships with the community, providing something. I mean, I think stuff like that is huge. Yeah. You know, and I'll, and I'll preface that or end that by saying small farms as we currently sit can't, you know, I don't want to get into the whole feed the world thing, but we just don't have the production level of small farms to be able to service the entire country, mm -hmm. let alone the world. Uh, so we need those big guys, you know, we, we need that. And I don't, that's another area that we can spend a lot of time on about, you know, the, the local food versus commodity versus, you know, big, big production uh, divide there and the untrust that exists between those uh, different groups. Um, I don't have, I don't look at them that way. We need them. We need the big lettuce and tomato guys because I can't grow all that stuff. You know, I, I love to be able to grow as much as I can for my local community, but mm -hmm. At the end of the day, I still can't service all of them. Um, so we need to, we need to, I guess, uh, do a better job there too of uh, figuring out how we can all play nice together and <laughs> just do our thing and and put out the best product we can. Yeah, it's definitely easier said than done. I mean, I feel like there's no like perfect right answer. It's always a little bit tricky, but I mean, I guess we can try to figure it out somehow. Yeah, we 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 need a lot of. We probably need a lot of beers to figure out the answer to that. I don't know. <laughs> probably. I mean, <laughs> beer can figure out almost every issue out there, I would say. I think almost. you're right. I think you're right. <laughs> well, um, Steve, this has been awesome, man. So um, if people are in the Iowa area, area or if they just want to figure out more about Twisted Farms, where can they go and learn more about you? Sure. Social media hmm. is uh Probably the first on the list, that's just because everybody can get on Facebook or Instagram and find us. Just type in the search bar, twistedriverfarm.com. Uh, we're the one in Iowa. I think there might be one. I get calls from another one, like people trying to reach one and like it's like a horse farm in Wisconsin or something. That's called <laughs> Twisted River Farm. Twisted River Farm in Iowa. 
uh, on Facebook and Instagram. You can find us on our website at twistedriverfarm.com. Um, you can check out some stuff we have on there and get on our newsletter. Even if you're not local, you can check us out. We do a lot on email. Email. We love email now. Uh, I would give up social media tomorrow. Uh, email for us is like the new place we live. We love it. Um, and so, uh, you can find us on all those three places. Uh, email me at steve at twistedriverfarm.com. If you have any uh, comments, questions, tell me I'm full of it. I don't know. Whatever you want to do. One of our strategies with email is to make it really value driven. We do not send out an email saying, well, this week Susie milked the cow and we went to town to get a bag of screws. Nobody cares about that. Nobody really honestly cares. They want to know what's in it for them and what what can I learn from you today kind of a thing. So mm -hmm. we really try to be very, very mindful about what we send out in email. Aside from, we, we have a couple different emails we send out. We have one that we send out every single Monday morning. That's a, we call it fresh, the, our fresh sheet, fresh this week. Here's what we have on the store this week. If you want to order, click right here. And we have a, a list of those people that, they only see, they, they, that's what they want to see. Then we periodically send out like the, here's what we have going on type stuff. And we're very sporadic about that. We don't say, well, every Thursday, we're going to send you an email that tells you what we're up to. We wait until we have some stuff to talk about that's very pertinent and timely and value added. And we send out that kind of stuff. And then the other thing that we've done, uh, this kind of goes way back to the microgreen conversation. We actually work with a local dietitian uh, from the hospital. Uh, we give her some free product every once in a while. And she whips up an original recipe using our stuff and puts a whole recipe together or how to use it kind of a thing. Take some pictures and then we load that on our website. So if you go onto our website, which again is twistedriverfarm.com and you click on the on the recipe button up there, all those recipes are developed by her so we have a really local connection to our recipe page we're not just grabbing them off of youtube or google excuse me and we send those out uh to people as we get them in so really highly value driven there that's awesome i mean the the um the turnover rate for marketing especially when you can build an audience and you're intentional with it is such a win-win so that's awesome you guys are doing that yeah and our our email list is growing very, very quickly. Uh, I mean, considering about a year and a half ago, we had, I don't know, three, 30 people or something. I think we're up over 400 now, which, you know, there's, that's still very small potatoes, but for a very rural area farm, I think that's uh, a very positive trajectory to be on. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not bad, man. Well, Steve, this has been great, man. I learned so much about microgreens and you guys. Um, if I'm ever in Iowa, we'll have to stop by and say hey and see what you're doing. We'd love to have you, and there's always beer in the fridge, so stop on over. Hey, I'll take you up on that. That sounds like a plan, man. <laughs> well, thanks again. We'll talk to you soon. Hey, thanks for having me on. This is a lot of fun. Thanks again for listening to my episode with Steve. If you want to check out Twisted River Farm, go to twistedriverfarm.com to see more of his awesome stuff. And, you know, especially if you're in Iowa and you are in northern Iowa and you want to buy some of his leafy greens and microgreens. And if you're new here or, you know, maybe you're a longtime listener, thank you, um, consider sharing with a friend or family member. Whether you're busy right now, driving, working out, or whatever you're doing, Usually on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever you're listening on, 
there's a handy little share button that you can copy the link and then you can text it to somebody, email it to them, or if you want, you could even post it on Facebook. Um, so if you can, whenever you get a free chance, sharing the content and the episodes helps us out a lot. So again, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week.